This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. I'm here today with Rob Griffiths, who is the General Secretary of the Communist Party of Britain and is uh, from Cardiff and uh, still lives in this area. So um, welcome, uh, Rob. Uh, Pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Martin. Yeah, you've had a very uh, interesting uh, political life, um, but Jonathan Evans, the former Tory MP, once said to me that you were a loss to mainstream politics. Uh, I know that, uh, we'll get on to this a bit later, uh, he was on a defence team for you in a uh, quite famous trial which took place in the 1980s, but perhaps we'll start off really with you just saying what your um, what your background is. You're from Cardiff. Yeah, I'm from uh, San Romney originally, although I was born in a flat in uh, Whitchurch Road by what is now the flyover, uh, but uh, brought up in San Romney, attended Bryn Havard High School, uh, very happy memories of Bryn Havard and of the teachers that we had there. We were very, very fortunate. I was one of the few in my circle of friends who passed the 11 plus, so I went down Rumney Hill uh, to Cardiff High School. Um, most of my friends went to Ball Road Secondary Modern. I've never forgiven the 11 plus system for that terrible apartheid that it imposed on people. Um, and uh, after, uh, after studying at Cardiff High, I went to the University of Bath, where I took a degree in um, an honours degree in economics. Uh, I must say, I didn't get a very high pass. I was far too busy uh, enjoying myself, but also reading a little bit of student politics in the end. Um, and uh, soon after leaving university, um, I got a job. I had a number of placements while there for the Welsh Hospital Board and the Ancient Monuments Board and so on. But then I got a job um, as research officer, parliamentary research officer, for the three Plaid Cymru uh, MPs who were elected in 1974. Um, so that's a, yeah, that's a basic summary of my early years. So that was David Ellis Thomas, David Wigley, and Glyndor Evans. Indeed. How did you get on with them? Uh, very well, I must say. They 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 were very uh, kind. They were very helpful. They were. They were good to work for, they were very considerate, they were very conscientious MPs, um, they kept me busy but they were very, very busy themselves. Um, although we didn't part on the best of terms politically, uh, I've certainly always maintained friendly relations with them and have the highest respect for them as, as individuals and as um, political figures who, who did their best. 
I was recently at a, uh, the National Union Journalist Conference a couple of months ago and I bumped into Anita Halpern, who mm. is one of the leading members of the Communist Party and is also a, a big NUJ activist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked uh, after you and she said, oh, he's fine, but he's, he's still involved with the, this Welsh nationalism malarkey sort of thing. <laughs> so, um, would, would you, I mean, would you describe yourself as a Welsh nationalist? No, in any I, sense? I, I wouldn't. And in fact, uh, I ceased doing that um, soon after joining Plaid Cymru. Um, no, it's never been a question of being a nationalist, um, uh, a Welsh socialist, a republican, an internationalist, certainly. Uh, but I don't think, uh, you know, the, for me, whilst I'm still um, very proud of my Welsh identity and a great believer in a whole number of uh, national and democratic causes as far as Wales is concerned, um, the boundary between Wales and England is not the most important uh, political or ideological boundary as far as I'm concerned and that's been the case for quite a few decades. So how did you uh, come to be involved with Plaid Cymru then? I mean obviously you went for the job but at that time when you were working for them what was your perspective on what they were doing? Well I'd grown up in a very uh, in, in a very sort of progressive minded household my father was um, um, uh, an adult uh, was a, lo- a, a trade unionist throughout his adult years he was a printer originally for the old Empire News which I think was based somewhere in this area um, so I grew up in a household of uh, left of centre ideas shall we say but not, not highly ideologically so um, I was a Labour supporter in, uh, when I was a school student um, uh, then I moved leftwards fairly sharply, uh, and that was, of course, towards the end of the 1960s when already Labour were revealing their, let's put it this way, inadequacies, shortcomings, as a party that represented, uh, that should represent working class people. Um, and of course, then that was the time of applied Cymru resurgence, especially in the South Wales Valleys. And Plaid had all the appearances of a left-of-centre party, a left-wing party that also took the national question seriously, which for me was very important then, as it is today. So those were the grounds, really. I suppose I joined Plaid more or less out of... Uh, uh, it was a default position uh, because of the, uh, the perceived inadequacies of Labour as a left-wing party and as a party that represented um, uh, Wales and uh, the national question. And then a bit later you got involved with uh, something which was called uh, the Welsh uh, Socialist Republic uh, Movement. The Welsh Socialist Republican Movement, indeed. Um, Well, towards the end of the 1970s, um, by then I was becoming a little disillusioned with Plaid Cymru. Um, I thought it could have turned more clearly to the left I thought it should have prioritised attacking the incoming Conservative government in 1979 instead of continuing to aim most of its fire at, uh, at uh, the Labour Party in Wales. And so a group of us, together with some disillusioned um, Labour Party members and one or two ex-communists, we, we established the Welsh Socialist Republican movement and raised the slogan of a Welsh Socialist Republic. Um, it didn't seem quite so uh, unrealistic back then. Um, We still had quite a militant trade union movement. We had big protests against the Tory government, especially its plans to shut down a large section of the Welsh steel industry. We had the the occupation of second homes and then, of course, the arson campaign 
bombs were going off in conservative party offices and army recruitment offices and so on. And so uh, we thought that slogan would stimulate um, the political movement uh, even further in Wales. So, yes, quite a few of us became involved in that. We organised some big marches, some big demonstrations. We tried to highlight some issues. Um, And uh, I was the secretary of that movement for a couple of years. And then uh, something quite devastating happened. You got arrested, didn't you? Well, I got arrested several, quite a few times, and so did hundreds of other people in Wales, mind. Um, I was arrested after playing, I suppose, a leading part in the protests outside police stations and police cells against, um, uh, against those arrests during Operation Fire and subsequent waves of arrests in Wales. Uh, I was arrested uh, for the third time and um, charged after 48 hours in the police station with very serious offences. Uh, what were they accusing you of? Oh, I was accused of um, uh, of uh, planting a bomb in um, uh, an army recruitment office, I think it was, in Pontypridd. I was accused of helping somebody to evade arrest, knowing or believing them to be in possession of explosives. I was accused of conspiracy to cause explosions. But, of course, there wasn't a shred of evidence uh, to co- connect me to any of those other than what I'd supposedly admitted uh, in uh, in private to police officers whilst in detention. Um, I didn't sign anything, nothing was recorded, and you really can't invent thousands and thousands of words that somebody has supposedly said when you've hardly heard them say anything. Uh, you're going to make mistakes. And so, in a sense, it was relatively easy in front of a fair-minded jury to point out that I couldn't possibly possibly have made all these admissions in the police station, presumably out of a desire to spend the rest of my life in prison, uh, when there was no other evidence against me, and no evidence against most of those who were who were charged uh, with very serious offences. But thank goodness for the jury system, and for open-minded, fair-minded people. And of course, that was at the time before the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which meant that after that, there would have had to have been a recording of what you had supposedly well, said. Well, there, there had been a series of scandals and um, miscarriages of justice based on what people had supposedly admitted of their own free will while in police custody. And so the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, whilst it was a long way from being satisfactory, nevertheless, by uh, demanding that there should be some verifiable uh, proof that people had actually made these admissions. Um, uh, when that act came in, it has made, I think, some difference. Um, if it had been in force at the time we were arrested and charged, uh, then uh, most of us would uh, most of those cases would never have come to trial. So, what do you think was going on there, Rob? Um, I mean, you know, obviously the, the police were, I'm afraid, fitting you up. Well, I think the police were under great pressure. Um, from uh, the, the, the higher echelons of the legal and political establishment uh, to try and um, put people into the frame for, for uh, what had been happening in Wales. Um, I think as well some very senior police officers uh, certainly seemed to take everything very, very personally uh, when they were criticised and when protests were organised outside their police stations. In fact, in custody, they made absolutely no secret of their personal animosity towards a number of us. So how long were you in prison for on remand? I, I, I had two periods um, on remand. Uh, first, after the initial arrests. Um, I th- 
can't remember exactly now, but it was a few weeks. Um, and then during the trial, uh, when the jury retired to consider their verdict, again, that was, a, that was a, maybe just before that point, that was another week or so. But of course others spent uh, about a year in prison. People lost their, people lost their jobs, um, um, close family members, in one case somebody's father, actually died as a result of all of the pressure. Uh, so it was quite a traumatic time, but um, there were people who had it much worse than I did. And what did you take from that experience, Rob? Uh, well, I'd never had any great illusions um, that the British justice system was on the side of ordinary people, by and large, uh, although I'm not certainly not denigrating the work that uh, many ordinary uh, police officers do. Uh, but I've always thought that the legal system in Britain was biased towards uh, property and wealth and so on. Um, but to have it confirmed in quite so stark a way, I, I suppose, does come as a little bit of a, a little bit of a shock. Um, it also uh, there, there were political lessons to be drawn from it as well. There's no point in being so far ahead of public opinion uh, that you completely lose touch with people. You isolate yourselves and uh, you end up achieving uh, little or nothing. One of the paradoxes of that case was that you uh, had as a solicitor Jonathan Evans, who was mm. a, a Tory. Uh, he later became a Tory MP in two constituencies, Brecon and Radnorshire and Cardiff North. And yet, I know from what he's told me that uh, he's got a very high regard for you, and I think you've got quite a high regard for him. Well, absolutely. I, th I, think, um, I think Jonathan was intent on proving to me that the British legal system, in fact, did work and, w and was uh, one of the finest in the world, providing it was uh, staffed and operated by decent people like him. So uh, he, did a, he did a wonderful job. Um, of course, we never reached any political agreement, although he was actually accused by the prosecution in the course of the trial of being a secret, secret sympathiser uh, of uh, Welsh socialist republicanism, which is absurd given his political record. But yes, I have the highest regard for Jonathan for his professional skills, but also his sheer integrity. Um, when the police tried to, and the prosecution tried to falsify a very significant conversation he'd had with a, a senior police officer in South Wales, um, he went into the witness box and gave evidence against that police officer and his account of that conversation. So I, I've always had the highest regard for Jonathan, and it's always a great pleasure uh, to bump into him, and he's not even embarrassed to have his photograph taken with me. So where did your political journey go from there? Well, I went respectable and uh, joined the Communist Party. Um, the Communist Party uh, struck me, and I'd, ha I'd been on friendly terms with communists in Wales, had the highest regard, for example, for Di Francis, the former General Secretary of the South Wales Miners, a very cultured man, a, a patriotic Welshman, but also an internationalist and so on. The Communist Party, it seemed to me, um, still stood by the principles of socialism, and worked for a, a socialist society. Um, it uh, was rooted in the labour movement, in the working class movement. Uh, it was an inter part of an international movement as well, but almost alone on the left back then in the early 1980s, the Communist Party had always taken the national question in Wales very seriously, supported measures um, uh, to assist the Welsh language, 
supported Welsh medium education, supported uh, maximum devolution uh, to Wales and the Welsh Parliament. So I suppose in many ways it, 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 it had always been my natural home. I just didn't realise it until shortly before 1983. And yet, electorally, it's not been very successful at all, has it? Oh, the Communist Party has always faced um, huge problems uh, electorally, uh, uh, apart from the, the, the reality that anti-communism is more or less the state religion in Britain and has been uh, since 1917, especially uh, after the onset of the Cold War. So anti-communism has played a major part. Um, the lack of resources that the Communist Party has always experienced, which means it's been very difficult to counter a lot of that propaganda. Our electoral system doesn't favour small parties, of course, and never has done. Um, uh, I've always been a, a supporter of a, a, a proper system of proportional representation. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the position of the Labour Party as you know the monolithic um, party of the left of centre, in Wales and the one to which trade unions are affiliated. So I think those are just some of the major factors that have made it very difficult for the CP to make any electoral breakthroughs, except in some, lo in some localities, in some local communities, where communists have won a very good name for fighting for the interests of ordinary people, as of course communists have done in the trade union movement, um, where uh, it's much more likely that communists will win elections because people who know them and have worked with them and been represented by them, uh, including people on the right politically, um, respect the work that communists do and respect their dedication to the interests of ordinary people. What's your perspective on the Soviet Union, Rob? I know that's a very broad question, <coughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, what, what yes. contribution did it make? I think the Soviet Union made uh, overwhelmingly a positive contribution to the course of history in the 20th century. It set an example uh, of how ordinary people uh, can win state power, despite the mistakes, some of them terrible mistakes that uh, followed. It also showed how socialist and communist governments can transform the lives of many millions of people for the better, uh, which uh, was the case in my assessment as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Of course, it extended enormous support to the anti-colonial and national liberation and peace movements around the world. Uh, Nelson Mandela was the first to recognize uh, that. Uh, and then there was the role that the Soviet Union played in defeating fascism. I think if we were to discount everything else, I think the fact that the Soviet Union, at the cost of 26 or 27 million people, I think the fact that the Soviet Union took on and defeated uh, four-fifths of the Nazi war machine and saved the people of Europe from fascist barbarism, I think for that alone tribute should be paid to the Soviet people and to the achievements of the Soviet Union. And yet, uh, Stalin himself was uh, a despot who was responsible for the death of many millions of people, wasn't he? Um, well, the, the conditions in which the Soviet Union attempted to build a socialist society and succeeded in, in the basics, uh, those were always going to be, you know, those were always very, very difficult, surrounded by hostile powers that were determined to undermine and overthrow the Soviet system. 
Um, I'm afraid uh, that did lead um, the Soviet regime, particularly under Stalin, uh, to act in ways that were gross violations of the ideals, uh, the principles, and the laws of the Soviet Union. And uh, certainly, um, around a million people uh, were executed at the height of the purges. Uh, nothing like the Western propaganda figures, but um, still a million is, uh, is totally unacceptable. I don't believe in the death penalty at all. Uh, and of course, uh, millions also suffered from wrongful imprisonment and death uh, um, while in labor camps and so on. So, you know, that, uh, that is something that uh, communists have had to face up to and take responsibility for. Uh, that's something, by the way, that most of the international communist movement has done openly um, since uh, since at least 1956. Um, uh, yet uh, we are still, of course, confronted with it um, at every interview. I don't I don't criticise you for that, Martin. But I can't do an interview on any subject under the sun without the question of Stalin being raised, which you know I understand, although. It's not as if every conservative politician uh, is then challenged at every single interview they ever give about uh, slavery, the slave trade, the massacres of the British Empire, the appeasement of fascism, uh, the support for apartheid, the support for military dictatorships in Latin America and all the rest of it. Um, those are all passed by in polite silence. So, again, I think that's just a reflection uh, of the anti-communism that we have to deal with and that we have to face up to. There can't be any blank pages uh, in history. There can't be any closed books. Um, I've always been in favour of openly and fully examining what happened during the Stalin period. And there's been an enormous amount of research published even in recent years by uh, Harvard scholars, by uh, J.R. Getty, Oleg Nomov and so on, which um, expose the full horrors of that time, but of course they also expose the absurdities of some of the Western anti-communist and anti-Soviet propaganda, which is why they're not getting much publicity either. Of course, another um, big issue which is often referred to is the situation which existed in Warsaw Pact countries where people were not allowed to travel to the West and of course, at its starkest, you had um, East Berlin uh, with the wall where people weren't able to go over to the West. And there were these shootings of people who tried to uh, to get across the line and all, and all of that. I mean, that was uh, hardly going to endear people towards communism, was it? Those restrictions um, were uh, stupid. They were, I think, the consequence of a certain degree of paranoia. Um, but uh, also just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And uh, the Eastern Eastern Europe, uh, quite contrary to the picture portrayed here, of course, Eastern Europe, having experienced the Nazi invasion and occupation and having borne the brunt of much of the, the fighting in the Second World War, um, Eastern the powers in Eastern Europe were convinced that uh, there could be a Western attack uh, at some time. And uh, I'm afraid... The overreaction restricted civil liberties in a way that certainly we wouldn't accept. I hope we wouldn't accept in Britain and in many other countries. And that didn't help that didn't help at all as far as the standing and the reputation of the of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe were concerned. Despite that, 
there were also great achievements in those countries. There, um, Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia were rebuilt from rubble, um, and um, there were great there was great progress made socially and economically, culturally over a whole a whole number of decades. Um, and we, we, we've got the strange situation now where after they've supposedly enjoyed the fruits of um, Western democracy and uh, private enterprise and so on, there's barely a public opinion poll in, uh, in, in many parts of Eastern Europe that doesn't show a majority of people um, being rather nostalgic for the old days when there was a measure of social security, a measure of social equality and so on that they no longer enjoy. So, um, you know, as, as the saying goes, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. And um, it's, uh, in many ways, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable that um, in Romania, in Russia and so on, there are even there's a majority of the people who's, who experienced those days of socialism actually wish that they had them back. Um, so the picture has never been as black and white as it's been portrayed here in the West. So I think in terms of things like job security and in terms of things like uh, childcare, uh, Eastern European countries were, were pretty good, weren't they, uh, to, to be fair? I mean, because you would not, there was not a problem of unemployment in uh, Eastern European countries before the uh, Berlin Wall. No, there, that's right, there wasn't. There was full employment. Um, there were excellent education and training facilities. Uh, there were thriving cultural institutions, and most of those, most of those things have gone. Um, uh, and uh, um, we can, you know, we can look at uh, those countries where some of those things still survive. Uh, I'm thinking of Cuba. I'm thinking of China, and so on. And of course, uh, the result is that in those countries, once they can combine those social and cultural policies with um, with the right kind of economic policies, uh, then we're seeing those countries really standing out in terms of their comparison with uh, social and cultural life and provision in uh, in even the most advanced capitalist countries. What do you see as the outlook for the left in? Britain and Wales now? Um, the Well, I, I don't think we are where our ruling establishment expected us to be after the collapse and counter-revolution in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Of course, we were promised a new world order in which we would all reap the benefits of the peace dividend uh, and so on. Uh, and instead, we've had one war after another We've had severe pro programs of austerity and uh, privatization in the wake of a series of economic crises and the great crash of 2007-2008. And the failure, I think, of capitalism to deliver on its promises to provide a, a decent, dignified life for the vast majority of people, um, economic stability, uh, social security and so on, um, that has led to a revival in the fortunes of uh, of the left. Um, some of the policies that have long been associated with the political left in Britain, such as uh, public ownership, the redistribution of wealth and so on, have never been more popular in my lifetime. Um, the question now is whether, particularly in Britain, the Labour Party can capitalise on this disillusionment with the establishment 
this general um, disbelief of professional politicians and so on. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has captured that mood and turned it into a positive enthusiasm to some extent. But of course, because he's been a lifelong consistent uh, socialist, also a friend of the Communist Party, I I would add, uh, because of that he has come under ferocious uh, daily attack uh, from wide sections of the of the mass media, uh, and I think they will pull out all the stops. The establishment in Britain will pull out all the stops to prevent a Corbyn-led Labour government, because they know that Corbyn is not one of them. Uh, unlike many previous Labour leaders, he genuinely believes that we can create a better, fairer society than capitalism. Um, he genuinely believes that. Uh, threatening people or using uh, weapons of mass destruction to murder millions of civilians is morally wrong and repugnant. He's not prepared to pretend to be a psychopath. Um, uh, And uh, he's not a member of the establishment club. So the real question is whether the Labour movement, the trade unions, the membership of the Labour Party, uh, millions of ordinary people, are prepared to rally around this left leadership of the Labour Party and see if we can not only elect a left-led Labour government, but perhaps even take the first steps towards uh, a socialist transformation of our society. Because the electorate is probably more volatile now than it Mm. uh, has been for many, many years. Um, I mean, looking back to the general election of 2017, just about a year ago, um, at the beginning of the campaign, it looked as if there was going to be a huge landslide for the Conservatives, and then as the campaign went on, their lead uh, largely evaporated, and uh, Theresa May, who was obviously convinced that she was going to win a, a big majority at the outset of the campaign, came unstuck and lost the majority, now has to rely on the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, so d- did the events of last year, the general election campaign and what happened there, give you heart? Well, yes. Um, certainly it, it surprised, I think, all of us that after a year and more of the most ferocious attacks, not only from not only from large sections of the mass media and the Conservative Party and sections of big business, but from within his own party, um, uh, it, it certainly, I think, surprised most of us that Labour and Jeremy Corbyn did so well. Um, but of course, uh, the, the the difference between the beginning and the end of the election campaign was a, lo- a lot more people that had an opportunity to hear and see and read what Jeremy Corbyn was actually saying instead of what most of the media were claiming he was saying. And uh, a lot of people liked what they heard. I think that don't forget the Tory vote also went up. They benefited in particular from the decline of UKIP. Uh, Many of those votes, I think, would have gone to Labour had Jeremy Corbyn been free to voice his real views on the European Union and to put the left case for Britain's withdrawal from the EU. I think that would have appealed to a lot more people um, and uh, Labour could even possibly have won that election. Uh, Since then, again, the attacks have not abated in the slightest, and I think they will get more hysterical the closer we get to the next general election. I think a crucial factor is whether there is going to be unity 
around uh, the leadership of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell within the Labour Party itself. I'm afraid it does appear that there is a fairly substantial minority of Labour uh, MPs who uh, love the European Union so much and dislike the prospect of socialism so much that they're prepared to sabotage even the electoral chances of their own party. Because the thing is, uh, obviously, uh, Rob, that um, you are a left-wing Brexiteer. Mm -hmm. Um, Tony Benn plus. In the the tradition of Tony Benn uh, Um, and and others, yes, indeed. Yeah. um, I mean, obviously, there have been a lot of um, uh, business people and others who are saying, continue to say, that... If we leave the single market, it will be disastrous for uh, Wales economically and for Britain. I mean, do you not think that um, the events since the referendum, where there has been uh, quite a a shambolic um, performance by uh, the government, one might say, uh, where they don't seem to have been able to agree on what exactly they were negotiating for, what their position was, they've been made to look, one would say, rather foolish on the international mm. stage. And indeed, Britain has become internationally, uh, I'm afraid to say, quite a laughing stock um, because of the hapless way in which um, the um, negotiations have uh, taken place from the point of view of Britain. Hasn't that in any way disillusioned you about the prospects of a post-Brexit well, firstly, uh, society? I don't, blame, I don't blame the Brexit vote for any of that. The Tory dilemma has been, firstly, that the leadership of the Tory party is still, by and large, pro-EU, and yet they're having to negotiate an exit um, uh, in order to try and keep their party united, and they're doing so under enormous pressure from the CBI, the Institute of Directors, the City, and so on, um, uh, not only to abandon uh, Brexit, if that were at all possible, but at the very least to try and negotiate an exit settlement that keeps Britain tied to the single market rules and the customs union rules, which of course are precisely the reason why most of big business in Britain and across Europe supports the European Union in the first place. So that's the dilemma that the Tory party leadership is in. I don't have any great um, sympathy for them. I don't agree that uh, I don't agree that their inept performance has made Britain uh, a laughing stock. By the way, I've travelled pretty widely uh, around the world and across Europe since the referendum result. Um, I find a lot of people have a lot of respect for the fact that uh, the people of Britain stood up, the majority of voters anyway, stood up um, and uh, told the establishment where to get off, and that they were fed up of being members of this. Um, of this anti-democratic, overbearing, bureaucratic, pro-big business club. Some some people, of course, quite a few people voted against the EU for reasons I don't agree with. Some because they just don't like foreigners, uh, or they regard Britain's problems as being caused by um, by uh, immigration and so on. Um, but a lot of other, a lot of a lot of the 17.4 million, the majority, didn't vote against the EU for reactionary reasons. They voted against it for all of the right reasons, in my view. So I don't accept that we're a, a laughing stock. I know that's what the pro-EU media want to tell us all the time, of course, and what a shambles it all is. The EU has been... Um, their unelected, unaccountable negotiators have been pretty intransigent 
and have done their best to blow up every difficulty into a into an insurmountable obstacle that can only be overcome by us capitulating to EU demands and by us continuing to accept uh, single market rules, customs union rules, the jurisdiction of the anti-trade union, European Court of Justice and all the rest of it. Aren't you uncomfortable a bit, Rob, about the fact that you're on the same side as the likes of Liam Fox and Neil Hamilton who argue that we'll be fine uh, afterwards and we'll be able to do these wonderful free trade deals with the likes of the United States, which we know what a free trade deal with them might result in. It may very well result in us having to lower our standards. Well, we know, of what kind of, we know what kind of trade deal the European Union wanted to sign with the United States, and uh, that was very much a pro-big business, anti-democratic uh, trade deal that would have hugely inhibited the policies that any left Labour government might want to pursue. Um, no, I'm not on the same side as Liam Fox and so on, um, and neither was Tony Benn when he was a leading figure in the anti-EU campaigning in Britain in the previous referendum. There's always been a very solid left-wing analysis and left-wing case against membership of the EU. And uh, even if I were uncomfortable, I mean, I've never been on platforms with these uh, with these right-wing anti-EU people, even if I were uncomfortable, I think I'd probably be even more uncomfortable to be on the same side as the Institute of Directors, the CBI, the Bank of England, the, most of the city bankers and spivs and speculators, NATO, the unelected European Commission, the unaccountable European Central Bankers, and just about every employer's federation in the whole of Europe. I'd be even more uncomfortable being on the same side as, as them, uh, as a socialist and as a communist. So are you a proponent of socialism in one country? Uh, I think every country has to um, have develop its own strategy and find its own path to its own model of socialism. Um, I don't think socialism is going to come about as a result of some... A spontaneous international uh, revolution that will happen, happen simultaneously across a whole number of countries. I think the uneven uh, economic and political development of capitalism makes that a pipe dream, uh, as, as uh, Lenin himself pointed out back in 19, uh, 1915. So, no, I, I, I think there will always be different levels of political development, reflecting different levels of economic and social development. And I think uh, in Wales... I would hope um, that we retain and develop enough of our own particular characteristics as a nation to ensure that we um, find a way to a socialist society and we develop the kind of socialist society that is in tune with our own characteristics and our own conditions here in Wales. Thanks very much, Rob Griffiths. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.